Today's date is September 26, 2018, and the title of tonight's message is Fig Leaves and False Truths. Fig Leaves and False Truths. The past two Wednesday nights, Pastor Wade has preached on the topic of correction. Has that been good? Has it been life-changing? Amen. And tonight will be last in the series of correction. Each message previously preached brought to light how much we need correction. Amen? Amen. Next part's an amen too. And how much we despise it. Yes, amen. Same level of amen. (laughs) In the message he preached, Department of Corrections, Pastor Wade preached that our misconceptions about correction lead us to the belief that correction means confinement. Raise of hands, who can identify with that? I definitely can. Instead, the truth of God's word teaches us that correction brings freedom and is the very proof of our sonship. This was liberating for us to hear and beginning to turn our hearts towards the truth of God's word and more importantly, the truth of correction that comes into our life. He said, I asked some questions such as, do you realize you are despising yourself when you ignore correction? When the Lord corrects, it is always for our good. Always for our good. Our problem is that how many times we don't realize that it is the Lord that is correcting us. We miss it. We miss his hand. We miss his voice. We only see the person, the instrument, the tool that he is using and have forgotten the origin that the correction is coming from. I know I've done that countless times. I can't even say thousands because it's beyond thousands. You know, James one twenty two is a scripture you share. And I think it's very important as we're looking at this series of correction, because it, it starts off with, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. That's an important aspect. I, mean, I love James. James was an expert at giving correction. He was right to the point. Also, he continues in verse 22, do what it says. If there's ever any point of wisdom that we can find in God's word in those four letters, I mean, four words, we can find the, the key to success when it comes to engaging correction. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. No, no, I've read it. You've read this verse and go, that's, that's a pretty pretty ignorant person you, you lack some clarity if you, you you do that when we're going through these series of correction and each message has come about how easy has it been for you to retain the very things that you saw while sitting in the service as each scripture that pastor wade laid out is cutting your heart it's bringing to mind exact instances of where you have not loved correction and it hit you like a ton of bricks standing right there. And by the time we make it home in our car, we've forgotten all about it. You know, the one thing that we can walk away with is a revelation of not only how much we don't like correction, but the life that it gives. So here's what I encourage you to do. As things hit you right now, and as we go through the word, write them down. Make it plain. Go back over tomorrow morning. Go back over it next week. Revive it next year on this day. Set a calendar date on your your Android phone or your satanic uh, iPhone, whatever that is. Yeah, yeah. Repent of iPhone. Go back to Android in the name of Jesus. 
Do what the word says. You're, you're, you love correction when you are fully and immediately transparent when corrected. That's a sign of maturity. And that's where I want to be. And obviously that's where I want you to be as well. The second message that Wade preached was called damaged goods. This was even better than Department of Corrections. And here's why. The pastor Wade shared that many times as believers, we declare that we love and welcome correction. I've done that publicly. I've said it in my heart, you know, 10 times a day. I love correction. Yes, I really do. We say this even while we are working to disqualify both the message and the messenger of the correction. Man, when, when he began to lay out each one of those steps that we go through of making excuses and that disqualification process, my mind is doing exactly what I mentioned before that went in yours, is that I'm thinking of the very instances that my heart was responding in that manner and having to repent. Oh, yeah, that one, that one, and that one. Okay, great. It was a perfect word that set up the platform for tonight's message. What we're able to see is that, in fact, let's go to Genesis 3. We'll start in verse 6. You know, as you turn in there, the messages that we're preaching on correction are worth hearing many times over because our minds will quickly acknowledge the truth of the message and dismiss its application to our hearts. I want to share with you, starting with Genesis 3, 6, the impact that these messages have had on the Piro household and how we are learning to love correction. So, Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Say sewed fig leaves made coverings. These are two main points I want to hit. As we study Adam and Eve, let's not forget that we are also reading about us. This is us. This is our human nature, our great, 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 and whatever exponential power that is, grandparents, that gave us the nature that we have right now. Fig leaves and false truths can be a silent defense against correction. We weave together justifications in our mind designed to cover our sin and shame, hoping no one, including God, notices our condition. And here's what it looks like to weave those things together. We have pretend responses to future conversations. So, I want to paint the picture. You do something that you know is wrong. The Holy Ghost begins to convict you. And you imagine coming in contact whether it be by phone or in person, with someone you know is going to call you out on that sin. And immediately you begin to have that conversation in your mind, right? You know what? When I see Pastor Eric, he's going to say this, and then I'm going to say this back, and then he's going to say this, and I'm going to give this justification, and it's going to make sense, and he's going to agree with me. He's going to see exactly what I did was okay, because I know it's okay, but I really don't feel like it's okay because my heart's condemning me. But i got to keep going through this cycle so I can justify myself way ahead of time before we have this actual conversation. Does that sound kind of familiar? 
right? Come on, you, you know. You know, you, you, get, you get in that time where you're getting ready for work, and you're in the mirror, and you're really upset at what someone else said to you the day before. And it just stuck in your heart because it was convicting you of something, an attitude or something that you had said or done. And you're imagining and looking at yourself in the mirror and you're actually playing out the conversation as you're staring at yourself in the mirror. Making the faces that you would make, making the faces that they would make. You're pointing your finger. Then you're like, yeah, then I'm going to take them. I'm going to body slam them on the ground. And then I'm going to do this. It, that, that's where my heart goes. I'm sorry. Just being a little bit vulnerable tonight. But y'all, y'all, y'all get, y'all get the premise of what's sowing these fig leaves and making coverings for ourselves. It is this silent defense against correction before anything is ever said. We're already building our case. Here's one that we, a lot of us married couples can relate to. We need to tell our spouse or close friends about our sin, but wait until we have worked it all out in our mind before we actually speak with them. You know, I'm going to tell on myself a little bit. Then I'll move to Cassidy, but I'll start with me. I have, I have this habit that she will shout amen of waiting to tell her bad news until the most perfect moment, anticipating the best response, right? So it could be about a change of plans or uh, whatever. Well, here's what I do. I, Maybe you do it, maybe you don't. But I start the conversation something like this. Okay, so I need to tell you something, but don't overreact. <laughs> don't, don't overreact. I'm just going to let you know ahead of time. And so as I begin to tell her, I'm watching her begin to overreact. I say, like, remember, I told you, don't react. Don't overreact. You're starting to overreact and, you know, you're, you're starting to condemn me or not condemn me, but you're starting to convict me of the very thing that I haven't done right so far. Now let me tell about Cass. This may look something like, it's, it's hypothetical, very, very hypothetical about my wife, that she begins a conversation about expenditures. Certain things have been spent out of account or shows up with a bag from some department store. And she says, okay, don't be mad. What am I supposed to do with that? It's the same thing that I did with her with don't overreact. You just confine me to a point where I cannot react or give a corrective word about the very thing that you're going to tell me next. Come on, we do this all the time. And when we do it to each other, when we do it to the people that God has put in our lives, what we are doing is that we are preemptively rejecting and disqualifying correction that's going to come our way. These are fig leaves. These are false truths of justification that are then used for covering our shame for what we've already done. I want to show you the Hebrew words. Put up slide one. The Hebrew word for coverings. Uh, Nope, that's that's from last week. Uh, It's from the folder 926. Uh, Just take that down. I'll begin to tell you exactly what it is. So the word coverings for those the studious people in our room, is Strong's number 2290. It is Chagor, C-H-A-G-O-W-R. Did I say that right, Justin? Amen. Perfect. I got the thumbs up. Chagor means a belt for the waist, 
an apron, an armor, or girdle? Yeah, that should deserve a laugh. So what we have here is that they're sewn together fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. I had this wrong in my mind for so long. I thought that they just went to a tree, picked off a fig leaf, and somehow used the vine to attach it to them. No, they sat down and they sewed these things together and then it became this armored belt around their shame and their guilt. Come on, isn't that the very thing that we do when we begin to put together these arguments before the conversation has ever taken place? These silent defenses against correction. They were building up this fortified position to cover our shame and our guilt. In contrast, what we also see in God's word is the belt of truth. And that when we are fashioning with fig leaves and false truths, our own armor belt, we are denying ourselves the ability to have God's truth be our armor and be our protection. How much should we love correction? Well, it begins in your heart and it begins in your mind. Making sure you're not fashioning these silent defenses against correction. You know, there's only one thing that is truth, and that is God's word. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 10. We'll start in verse 4. Say, there when you are there. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Yes, amen. This is powerful. This is exactly what we do. We demolish arguments and every, say that word with me, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Let me give you a Webster's Dictionary description of what pretension is. Pretension is an allegation of doubtful value or claim to what is right. A pretension is or are fig leaves and false truths. It's this predetermined response that I've determined ahead of time that there is a, a falsehood in what you're going to share to me to correct me and the position that I stand in which I am right. In doing so, what we're actually setting up is something that God's word is prepared to destroy and demolish inside of our heart and inside of our minds. And as we avoid the confrontation with God's word, what we're actually avoiding is the very power of God to liberate us from that which is at war with him. We must be engaging God's word daily in order to demolish our fig leaves and our false truths of justification. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll look in verse 8. Say there when you're there. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So I'm sitting down reading this today, 
I'm thinking, okay, where exactly? I know this has happened in my life many times, but what's something very clear to me where this has been present in my life? And I remember when I was about five or six years old, I had done something wrong at school, came home and sat down, and I am trembling, waiting for my dad to get home. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get a spanking. Correction is on its way at 55 miles an hour down the highway. And as soon as I hear his vehicle approach, I begin to shake even more. He walks through the door, and I hear his voice. Now I'm just trembling to no end on the inside. And here's what I begin to do. I'm, I'm looking around. I'm trying to find something to do. Like, I'm going to go, you know, help my brother do something outside, or I'll go you know, wash some dishes. I'm five years old. What am I doing washing dishes? But I'm looking for anywhere else to be other than the direct line of sight of my father. Because I know correction is coming. And here's what I begin to do. I begin to hide among the trees. And what I mean is, I begin to try and find a grouping of a situation or people in order to diffuse what I did and how it was wrong. My brother was, is six years older than me. And he was a far worse child than I was. He was verbal. He was out, outspoken. He, everything about him was out front. And people could easily see the flaws that he had. That made it so easy for me as, as his younger brother. If I did something wrong, all I had to do is wait just long enough until he did something even worse. And then mine really didn't mean that much. Your fig leaves and false truths are not only a rejection of God's protection, but you are saying, I don't trust your ability to protect me. I was running from the very thing that God instituted in my household that was designed to shape and mold my character and my heart. And that correction should have been welcome. That correction should have been something I long for. But all I was thinking about was the temporal pain that it was going to cost and not the character that it would build in the future. Well, what about here? What about whenever you walk in and you're something that you have done, that you're ashamed of, you've worked out the pretension in your mind of how you're going to defend yourself, but you don't really want to be confronted by the pastors or anybody else in the church. So in worship, you just kind of mingle before service and after service. You're talking, but it's very light and surface conversations, and you're hoping no one really presses beyond just the surface of who you are and asking how you're really doing and what you're studying in the Word. Well, we, we've all done this. It comes that moment when God sends that right person, and they look you right in the eye, and they begin to ask the direct questions. And you get nervous, your pretensions come out, and the Word of God comes out of them and begins to destroy that pretension. And now your heart's laid bare, and either you're going to receive that correction or you're going to reject it. I'm here tonight to tell you that we need to embrace this, this correction. We need to embrace the very thing that's going to give us life and long and be eager for people to look into our eyes and call us into account anything that they see going on. Amen. Begin to study also this word garden. Let's put that slide up on the screen. Garden is the top word Strong's number 1588, gone. 
And it does mean garden, but the parenthesis says as fenced. And it comes from uh, the next Strong's number below to hedge about generally to protect or as King James Version uh, translates it, defend. Think about this. God took Adam and Eve and he put them in a protected environment. He provided for them a defense, a means in which they could thrive and grow. And when they sinned inside of that protection, they began to form and fashion their own protection, that their own version of a belt of truth. And ultimately, that fashioning of those fig leaves and those false truths was a rejection of his provision of protection and defense. It was a rejection of his lordship. Now, understanding rightly correction is understanding exactly who we are rejecting when we're rejecting correction. We're rejecting God when we reject correction. Not just the person in front of you, not the technicality of the argument, But the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is trying to defend you when he's given you protection or correction. Deuteronomy 32, 4, I'll read it to you. Speaks about the character of God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. All of God's ways are just. That if he puts you in an environment that is a garden, that is fenced, it is protected by his presence, and within that domain you sin, then he is still going to provide justice for you. He is still going to provide protection for you. He's not going to cast you as far as the east from the west. He casts your sins as far as the east from the west. You know, fig leaves and false truths. What they really do is they they exchange the defense, the hedge of protection that God is already providing for us for one that is fashioned by our own arm. And it results in us hiding among the trees. It may be a statement that sounds like this. I don't know. I know I did wrong, but I'm not nearly as faulty as so-and-so. I haven't done as much wrong as so-and-so that I see meeting with Pastor Wade and Pastor Matt all the time. Our, our tendency is to diffuse our sin through the crowd, hiding among the trees. Can I tell on myself again? Yep, because I said this word is cutting and shredding me. So here's what I do. When I I know that I've done wrong, I try to stay as still as I possibly can long enough, hoping that no one will notice me. Just if I don't move, I become invisible. I'm still, I'm invisible right now. No, not at all. Yeah, you're laughing at the Avengers movie. That if I, if I just make no motion, if I make no waves, I will draw no attention. And so, you know, the, what I feel like is, uh, this, this beaming light ready to shine on, on my condition will somehow go all around me, but not actually hit me. Someone else will eventually sin worse than I have and draw attention away from me. You know, the hard part about this truth about this and me, that I also see it inside of my girls. That whenever I walk into the room, I see them kind of inch over, 
inch over, go up the stairs, and just hope that dad doesn't come upstairs to their room and ask them how their day's going. I say all my girls, probably with the exception of Emmy. Uh, all of Emmy's flaws are very out in the open and, uh, and yeah, very visible to see. No problem at all. So fig leaves and false truths through silent defenses is one aspect. That, that may absolutely apply to you and how you respond preemptively to correction coming your way. I want to talk about a second facet. And that's fig leaves and false truths can also be an argumentative defense against correction. No show of hands, but I'm guessing as I go through each one of these categories, it's going to land on you eventually. Let's go back to Genesis 3, 9. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. You know, what Adam begins to give is a mixed response. And what I mean by mix is that he gives the truth. He ate it. And he gives an excuse as a deferment away from the responsibility that he had. What he demonstrated was the very things that Pastor Eric has been preaching on Sundays. Limp leadership and a flaccid marriage produces a man covered in fig leaves and false truths. This is evidenced by Adam not taking correction or responsibility and blaming somebody else. There was an article that we read 10 years ago that helps capture this. And that article is speaking about church government, but it's true about leadership in general. That bad forms of government cause good people to behave badly. Let me say that again. Bad forms of government cause good people to behave badly. Come on, men, as we begin to lead in a way that is full of fig leaves and false truths, and we demonstrate the characteristics of a poor and a bad leader, we begin to make some stupid decisions. And then what we do is that we ask the rest of our families to follow stupid and erratic decisions. And that only further frustrates them and their desire to to trust us, their desire to follow us. So it begins with us as men. Amen? Amen. Come on, man. Raise your hand. Say, it begins with me. So as we begin to acknowledge and see that the Lord's correction is aimed at removing our fig leaves and our false truths, it will make us into the men of God that we should be. It will give us the discernment that we need to lead our houses correctly, and we will find joy in our wives and our children to follow us into whatever God has called us to, even to the depths of death itself. We love good leaders. We're inspired by good leaders. But it requires that you love correction in order to be a good leader. It also produced ED. Yep, education deficit in his wife, who was responsible, who he was responsible to teach. And that resulted in her inability 
to have discernment of the deceit of the serpent that resulted in her inability ultimately to take correction. Let's look at that in verse 13 of Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The limp leadership from her husband led to Eve having ED, transferring the blame to the serpent's deception. Both Adam and Eve's reply had a defensive argument coupled with a simple truth of I ate it. You know, just because we admit the truth but also layer in justifications doesn't make it telling the truth and thereby loving correction. Both of their answers should have only been, yes, I ate it. That's it. End of story. Yep, I did that. Instead of, yes, I ate it, their mixed reply was, yes, I hate it. I hate correction, that is. When we mix justifications with the truth, when we're asked, we're saying, yes, I hate correction. This transferred to even their kids. Parents that wear fig leaves and false truth produce children that do the same. Let's look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. Say there when you're there. There we go. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. You know what was happening right here is that God was a loving and or is a loving and just God. And he was approaching and confronting Cain's silent defense of correction. That downcast and, and angry spirit. And he was actually trying to protect Cain and warn him ahead of time and correct him. Hey, man, change what's going on in the attitude of your heart because you're getting near the point where sin is going to master you. Isn't that a loving word? Isn't that a loving correction? I mean, think about some some of the times when you felt or not felt, but you participated, actively participated in sin. And you wish that there was the voice of God saying, hey, wake up. Sin is about to master you. Don't. The truth is, his word probably already was. We just ignored it. We were so focused on what made us unhappy, what made us angry. We were sewing together fig leaves and making coverings for ourselves because we were sinning in just the the confines of our own heart and our own mind. The result in Genesis 4-9 we see Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain's rejection of correction that God was trying to give him, it led to murdering his own brother. He had an argumentative defense against the correction after he had murdered Abel. This is what we do in our own hearts and then results in our own actions. And what I mean is something like this, is that you have something uh, in your life that is wrong. A brother comes to you. He corrects you. 
You begin to build an offense inside of your own heart. You begin to stir and you're, you're sewing together fig leaves. You're putting together false truths of coverings and you're justifying now your retaliation back toward him. You have not yet done an action, but it's causing your face to be downcast. It's causing anger to rise. And then there comes an action eventually where what you've done in your heart, you now carried out in your very actions. Cain murdered Abel inside of his own mind well before his hands had ever shed his blood. And God was trying to prevent the shedding of innocent blood the whole time by just addressing Cain's face and his attitude. Come on, how many times have the word of God pierced your heart? It's confronted it, done exactly like Hebrews 4.12 says that it is. It's a double-edged sword. Judging the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. And we acknowledge it either for a moment and then easily dismiss with a justification. Or we just ignore it altogether because we're so bent on what we are right about. And the result is that someone gets hurt. That there is damage in the body of Christ. When our ears perk up and now we begin to listen and we're beckoning, we're asking, we're seeking the correction of God to address our hearts. That on a daily basis, if God comes to me and says, Matt, why is your face downcast? Why are you angry? I must say, Lord, there's something wrong with me. Help me. And let your word cut away from me what doesn't belong so I won't be offended and I won't murder my brother inside of my heart. This is real. This is the very action that severs people from the kingdom of God. It severs churches in half. It destroys lifelong ministries. And apart from eating from the knowledge of good and evil, it is the most catastrophic sin that there can be to murder your brother or your sister. The one that God put next to you to carry out the call of God to subdue and multiply. There are arguments against correction, much like Cain's. It is not my fault. Some circumstance caused this, right? I was carrying home a $10 bill that someone had gave me to give to my father for payment one time. And I'm completely honest. uh, A gust of wind came by. And blew the $10 bill out of my hand and it went inside of a gutter. And so I arrived and I told my father what happened. And he says, son, I don't believe you. Where's the money? I said, oh, wind blew it out of my hand and it went down inside of a gutter. He said, let's go see. So we walk, look in the gutter. It's not there. Obviously, water had washed it away. And I'm like, I don't know what to say, Dad. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. And I begin to just over and over again present my, my case. And God said, I'm not God, but my, my dad said, yeah, but you should have held on to it much tighter. It, it is our, our natural response to immediately look for a justification how it's not our fault. Another one is, that's not exactly what I said. You know, this, this technicality, you know, you put a comma in the wrong place when you sent me that text, and that really defines whether or not you were, you were being mean to me or you're actually just asking me a question. I hate text messages. Let me say it again. I hate text messages. Because 
technicalities are a constant issue and you can't communicate exactly how you want to. Come on, you guys who are married, you know you're having that difficult conversation with your wife, right? Y'all are fighting. And the fight becomes more about the technicality of what you said and how you said it. Then about the substance that it was about in the first place. Technicalities trip us up from receiving correction. Next one. I didn't mean for that to happen. My motives are pure. You know, I was just not paying attention and being negligent. I didn't mean for that to happen. That's me. You don't fully understand. Let me say this in a different tone to get it exactly right how I say it. You know, you don't fully understand what happened or what needs to happen next because I'm superior to you in intellect. I understand this much better than you do. Well, you ever said that inside of your, just your heart, just your mind, right? It's an exaltation of pride. Are the best. I saved the best for last. I was just trying to help. That's probably the, the, the most dangerous excuse there is in rejecting correction. And here's how. Ultimately, what it is, is I really don't trust your leadership. I'm just trying to help because I think that your, your head is somewhere else besides on top of your shoulders. And I can think better for you. I don't know, maybe something like Peter pulling Jesus aside and rebuking him because Jesus said he had to go and be, and be crucified. But we know how that resulted in. Or how about Uzzah steadying the ark? You know, God, I was just trying to, trying to help. Yeah, I don't need your help. Lastly, what about Judas handing Jesus over? In a way, he was, he was helping the plan of God fulfilled, but he had no idea the satanic element that he was participating in. I was just trying to help is not a good excuse. Do you all want to hear about a solution to these fig leaves and false truths? Yeah. Yes. Have I thoroughly uh, beat you up and punched you in the face? Okay, that's not enough yeses. I think I'll keep on going. Amen. Let's go to Psalm 119, verse 11. Come on, we learned this one from our early age. Psalm 119.11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The first step to removing fig leaves and false truths is return back to what truth really is and the very thing that can sever your fig leaves away from you. And that is the truth of God's word. As simple as it is, I'm going to tell you, it's incredibly difficult to do. Because where exactly do we hide God's word? In our heart. Come on, I've sat down, I've taken boss notes in wonderful messages. I've gone to Acts classes and, you know, filled up six pages back in front of just revelation from heaven. And I've stored it in my brain, being able to recall it once I've had three cups of coffee. And... When I'm sharing with somebody else in a foreign country, it just rattles right off my mouth. But you know where it never made it? Into my heart. 
How do you know when the word of God is actually being hidden in your heart? Because it changes the way that you act and live and particularly how you respond to correction. When we are in love with God's word, we are in love with correction because God's word is already correcting us every time we read it. That word, his word is living and it's active and it's ready to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. We have got to get more of God's word in our heart and not just let it reside in our mind. Second one, go to John 15. Let's look at verse one. Come on, y'all getting something out of this? Amen. John 15, 1 says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Let me say this very clearly. Correction is not being cut off. Correction is not being cut off. I've had the opportunity to visit an orchard when they were pruning. And when I looked, there was a difference of maybe a quarter or half of an inch between the branches that were cut off and the branches that were pruned. It looked near identical. But the purpose that the Father has in giving us correction is that we are even more fruitful. You know, the very things that God is bringing up in your life, let's say after 20, 30 years of being in the Lord, and they're they're coming to the surface in a way that they never had before. And you're saying to yourself, I thought I was past this. I thought I was more mature in Christ than this. Take it as a kindness, a loving kindness, an oil upon your head, and say, thank you, Jesus, and you're not going to let me go one more year or one more day without this thing that's been lingering inside of me for 20 or 30 years. That what you're looking for me is that this thing be cut off so that I can be even more fruitful, despite the fact that I've been fruitful already. You know what rejection of correction will do inside of us? It will make us sterile in the kingdom of God. It will keep us from bearing fruit at all, and that will result in being cut off. But if we're loving and embracing and asking the gardener to tend to our heart, to tend to our thoughts and our mind, and saying, Lord, prune away, cut away what doesn't belong so that can become even more fruitful, you will see exponential growth in your life in the kingdom. Our Father desires to remove from us fig leaves and false truths. Well, that process leads us to interacting with 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll start in verse 8. You know, when correction comes, and God's word, through his servants, through a message, through even an, an event, a hardship, it hurts and it causes sorrow. I want to make sure that we're aiming or understand that God is aiming at the right kind of sorrow. So let's look at verse 8 in 2 Corinthians 7. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. He was a boss. Though I did regret it, 
I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. You know, Pastor Eric, Pastor Wade, myself, Bosch, Charlie, we do not delight in bringing you heavy correction that causes you deep sorrow. That's not what we're aimed after. We don't sit around and go, I wonder how much that we can just crush Mandy. I wonder if we can, when, you know, make Daniel's Cho head pop off because he's so overwhelmed with sorrow. What we're looking for is the same thing that Paul is writing about that God is looking for. And that is that is a sorrow that leads you to repentance. Paul is happy because he sees the outcome of the correction that God is giving those that were entrusted to him. And they're becoming even more fruitful. The evidence of becoming even more fruitful begins with repentance. How you know you love correction is to say, yes, I did that. And I want to repent of it. Show me what to do. I'm going to give you a list of seven things that demonstrate this. Let's read a little bit further before I do. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. The day that we were born again, that day that Jesus transformed you into a new creature, you experienced that godly sorrow that led to repentance, that leads to salvation. You were no longer in that state that you were prior, just hoping that God wouldn't kill you one day. Or every time that you prayed, it was all about, I'm sorry for this, I'm sorry for that. But now your conscience was clean, you were transformed, you were made new. And it began to produce righteous fruit in your life. You know, that process never changes for a believer's life. That what God is always after, even correcting us 30 years after being in the faith, is that we are experiencing godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that brings about salvation and then begins to bear fruit unto righteousness. Look in verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, say earnestness. What eagerness, say eagerness, to clear yourselves. What indignation, say indignation. What alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. I want to list seven things here. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Which then produces, the first one was earnestness. Let me give you a practical example. Earnestness is fully applying the correction to your actions. And here's exactly what I mean. When I am corrected, when Matt Pirro is corrected, I find excuses to not fully apply the correction. You know, I, I agree with about half of what that brother said. The other half, eh, we'll see. That's not eager or earnestness. That's half-heartedness. How many times have you been anything but earnest in applying full correction? 
When we are earnest and fully apply correction, we are able to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and so be qualified by God. Second one, eagerness to clear yourselves. This is wasting no time to answer for your actions. What that looks like in my life is I've received correction and silently changed my behavior, but never stepped up to answer for my actions. You know what? I'll just, I'll fix this. It'll be fine. And I'll show up and not do that again. And amen. We just kind of move, move past it. But I never step up and voice out loud. I am sorry that I did this to you. I am sorry that I didn't fulfill my word, whatever it may be. Have you done this or were eager have you, I'm sorry, have you done this or were you eager to justify yourself rather than just admit what you did? When we are eager to answer for our actions, we show that we love correction and trust that God is demonstrating his loving kindness to us. Amen. The third, indignation. Indignation is anger directed at your sinful behavior. Let me tell you what I do. I divert anger at my own sin to someone else's. You know what? I know I didn't fulfill my word and what I promised to do yesterday, but you didn't wash the dishes. That's kind of an absurd example, but there, I'm sure there's so many more. Just give me some time. I'll think about it. When you sin, do you burn others with your wrath because it alleviates you of your guilt and shame? By hating our sin first, we remove the log in our own eye and are able to rightly help our brothers and sisters. Alarm. This is fear of the Lord and his righteous standard. Fear of the Lord and his righteous standard. My response to correction can be, yeah, that's not that big of a deal when it really is. Have you downplayed a correction missing the bigger picture of what the Lord is holding you accountable to? We all benefit from an alarm to fear the Lord, encouraging us all to awake from our slumber and live up to God's holy standard. These are the byproducts of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. The fifth one, longing, driving desire to do what is right. I've experienced correction before, and it impacted me for only a few days or just a week. There was no drive in me to continue carrying out a godly response to correction. How many sermons have you heard that cut you to the heart, convicted your soul, and did not change your actions beyond the following sermon? When we have a driving desire to do what is right, everyone around us is inspired to accomplish the right relationship with God that we have. We bring life. Six, concern. This is zealous attention to your actions towards others. A burning attention. In correction, I responded with compliance, but not with a zeal to pay attention to the need of others. 
I've implemented exactly what I needed to do for me to get it right. But I didn't have the ability to look up and see what I needed to do for others. When you are corrected, do you direct your zeal at the faults within the correction or the effect of your actions towards others? When we are zealous to receive correction, our hearts and minds are able to have zeal for the need of others. Let me say that again. This is an important one. It's an important one for me. When we are zealous to receive correction, our hearts and minds are able to have zeal for the need of others. Lastly, number seven, readiness to see justice done. This is pursuing God's justice and not our own. I received correction and was more concerned with my own justice rather than God's. What has been your heart's response to correction? Have you put more effort in looking for your righteousness rather than the Lord's? Because when we eagerly desire correction, God's true justice is able to bring salvation to the lost. When we eagerly desire correction, God's true justice is able to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted and able to set prisoners free and ultimately bringing his divine order on earth through us. There's an example of in all seven of these in one of Jesus' disciples. And that was Peter. Peter was corrected more than any other disciple. I would have been like Andrew or uh, Bartholomew probably. Just kind of hang out in the background. Man, I don't want to do what Peter did. I'm going to stay far away from that. But what I'm finding is that the more that the Lord entrusts me, the more that he calls me up to a higher standard to be more effective and powerful in the kingdom, along with that comes a greater amount of correction. Because God is trying to shape and mold my character in such a way that it can handle the things that he wants to do through me. He was, Peter was rebuked by Jesus and told Satan, get behind me. As far as I know it, none of the pastors or elders have ever said that directly to anybody in this room. So, it's coming, just wait. Peter was disciplined for his pride and said that he would never deny Jesus. And the rooster crowed three times and he denied him. Let's turn to Luke 22 and we're starting verse 60. This is something that just made tears come down my face because I saw myself in this position. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Let's go to the next verse. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. That one moment that Jesus prophesied when Peter would deny him three times. Confronting Peter's pride. And Jesus in the midst of crucifixion. He looks straight at Peter. I could see myself in that moment. I read it earlier today. That's me. That's me whenever I am trying to 
hide or I'm trying to use pride to shield myself from correction. And there's that one moment when the eyes of the living God, Jesus himself, stare me right in the face. And I see the price that he paid for me to have the freedom that I live in. And I'm rejecting the very thing that makes me able to continue in that freedom in that life. All the angst, the turmoil that Peter must have felt that moment that Jesus looked him right in the eye. And the result. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord has spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Is that where Peter's life ended? No, not at all. Here's the joyful part of this, the inspirational. Is that later on, Jesus appears to the the disciples after the resurrection. And he begins to restore Peter. And he tells Peter three times, feed my sheep. He's entrusting him with a responsibility. He sees the sorrow, the godly sorrow that has impacted him as a result of his own pride, as a result of being corrected. And now in the process of restoration, he's entrusting something to him. He's making Peter even more fruitful. Peter's life was not defined by his past failures or even his need of correction. Instead, through repeated correction, he became a powerful and qualified minister of the gospel. His life then was full of righteous fruit that kept with repentance. Let's pull up this one verse, Acts 5.15. As a result, the people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. You want to know what correction leads to? Correction leads to a life that is full of the power of God. And those that stand underneath your shadow will experience healing and you don't even have to touch them. Everywhere you go, the kingdom of God will be cast from you onto them. Because you have loved correction and let it carve out what is standing between you and the process of being more fruitful. So what do we do from here? Let's go to Revelation 3 and verse 19. I'm sharing with you a word tonight that has been carving my heart all day long. I'm not thinking of other people's sin. I'm not thinking of other people's problems or the injustice of any part of it. I'm thinking about what is solely my responsibility before God. What am I preventing God from doing in my own heart and thereby carrying out his will through my own life. Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, say love. love. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Be earnest and repent. There was a song that moved me 20 years ago. At Brownsville Revival. And it said, I'm coming. I'm running to the altar. It was an acknowledgement of a state of separation between you and God. And there wasn't just, maybe I'll consider. Maybe I'll contemplate getting right with God. There was an earnestness to repent. 
There was an eagerness and even singing about running. And I watched droves of people empty and run to the altar to get right with God. Not as a display of a great man of God's words or his, his influence. It was just a pure response to Jesus looking them right in the face. And them coming face to face with their own condition and wanting to be corrected. So let's stand to our feet. Let's lay our hearts before God. Let's ask him to correct us. Let him, let's ask him to make us even more fruitful. So that what is hindering our ability to purely reflect him is cut away. And the pure image of who he is is all that people will see. So mighty God, we lift up to you our entire lives our heart, our soul. Lord, that we may be cut to the heart by your word, that we know how to repent and know how to be eager to see your correction enter into our lives, that we not reject any part of it, but that we welcome it, we beckon it. We say, change us, O Lord. Change us, mighty God. Let your transforming power not just be present the day that we were born again, but every single day as we encounter your presence and your word. Spirit of God, fill us. Spirit of God, lead us into truth. Strip away our fig leaves and our false truths. That what we would have is just that pure and refined gold and a linen garment white as snow. We welcome your presence in this place, mighty God.